Hey there, history fans, and welcome back to another episode of the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Melissa, and today we are taking a trip back to World War II for a visit to the seemingly impregnable Kolditz Castle in Germany. This is actually the winner of our recent poll, and thank you to everyone who voted. We are going to discuss its history, its use during World War II, and the many, many escape attempts there. Some successful, some not, but we'll certainly get into it. Before we begin, I actually want to read a couple of reviews from our iTunes. So the first comes from OKHX Fan, and they say, love the often and odd, sometimes strange parts of history that are reviewed. More facts that can complete half-told stories, bits of info picked up here and there. Keep them coming. Superb. And another is from RPSRuru. And it says, oh, hey there. Freaking love your episodes. Da bomb. No matter how many podcasts you do or how many I hear, I'm always drawn back to Pompeii, the first episode. They all rock. Thanks for all your hard work. And thank you for all of your great reviews and encouragement. We absolutely appreciate them. Thank you to everyone who's commented on our posts and on our episodes. We, we really, really, truly appreciate it. So there's actually a lot to cover today in terms of cold it. So let's go ahead and dig right in. So in the heart of Germany, you can find the long-standing Kolditz Castle in the city of Kolditz, and it's actually located in the middle of a triangle formed by the cities of Leipzig, Dresden, and Chemnitz. And the city was formed in 1046 with the permission of Holy Roman Emperor Henry III. The first castle was actually built on this site in 1083 for Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV. And 1158, Emperor Frederick Barbarossa named Timo I as the first Lord of Kolditz. And from the 1100s into the 1200s, the land around the castle was actually transformed into settlements and farmland, later developing into larger villages. All the while, the castle remaining as a watchtower to look over the German royalty. And 1404, after almost 250 years of Lords of Kolditz ruling, the last lord, Timo VIII, sold the castle for 15,000 silver marks to the Vettin ruler in Saxony. Side note, the Vettin dynasty is actually one of the oldest ruling families in all of Europe. Over time, they've actually split into smaller groups, one of which became the Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, which is the house that Prince Albert came from. So in 1464, the castle had renovations done by the order of Prince Ernest, who actually later died in the castle in 1486. During the reigns of Frederick III the Wise and John the Gentle, so the late 1400s into the early 1500s, the castle actually began being used as a royal residence. In 1504, a servant in the employ of the town's baker accidentally caused the city to catch fire. Maybe not a little unlike the fire of London in, say, 1666. This particular fire actually destroyed a large portion of the town, the town hall, the town church, and part of the castle itself. So a big oops. And in 1506, renovations actually began, and new buildings were actually built in the back of the castle in the courtyard. 
1523, the grounds of the castle were actually used for the cultivation of what would end up becoming one of the largest zoos in all of Europe. So during the years of 1553 to 1586, it was once again reconstructed, this time actually using Renaissance-style architecture for the building. And this included dividing it into sections as well, such as the royal residence, the cellar, and the banquet hall. During renovations in 1584, the chapel was actually redesigned and would actually link the cellar and the royal residence to the chapel. During the reign of Augustus the Strong in 1694, the castle continued to be renovated with a second courtyard being built as well as 700 rooms. That's a lot of rooms. <laughs> this place got big. So over time, the castle unfortunately fell into disrepair particularly during the early 1800s, and Frederick Augustus III turned it into a workhouse as well as a place to house and feed the poor, ill, and destitute, and it would remain a poor house until 1829. So from 1829 until 1924, the castle was actually turned from a poor house to a mental asylum for the, quote, incurably insane. And this period of nearly 100 years actually saw a lot of change in the politics of Germany. We had the tail end of the Napoleonic Wars, the end of the Holy Roman Empire, the creation of the German Confederation, the North German Confederation, the creation of the German Empire, and World War I. So a lot happening in just a small chunk of time. Now, during its use as a mental hospital, it was typically used for high-ranking officials, German nobility, and the very wealthy. Some of the more notable people that were here during that time were Ludwig Schumann, the second son of pianist and composer Robert Schumann, as well as the inventor of the first airship, Ernst Georg August Baumgarten. During World War I, it was also used as a prisoner of war camp. However, no escape attempts were known to have been made at this time. So during World War II, the Nazis actually turned the castle into a political prison, housing Jews, homosexuals, communists, and anyone else they deemed, quote, undesirable. No escape attempts were made until 1939 when they actually began to house allied prisoners here. And although there obviously were later attempts made that we'll certainly discuss in just a couple minutes, there are several reasons this wasn't actually done until 1939. The castle itself was located in the heart of the Reich, which meant that for 400 miles and any direction, you would actually find yourself in Nazi territory. So that's not good. Two, the walls of the castle at the time were seven feet thick, which made it very difficult to dig through. And three, if you happen to make it outside the walls of the castle, you may find yourself facing one side that actually has a sheer cliff with a 250 foot drop straight down below to the River Milda. That's not good either. <laughs> Don't want to do that. Additionally, because by this time the castle was a thousand years old, it was actually revered as a symbol of strength and durability for the German people, a symbol that was not lost to Hitler, who exploited it whenever possible. So aside from its original name of Kolditz, the Nazis also referred to the castle as Oflag for C. I apologize for my butchering of any German words. Oflag is an abbreviation for Offizierslager, which translates to officer's camp in German. 
And in terms of the setup of the layout of the castle, there was the German section and the POW section. So the Kommandantur or the German section had two exits and also housed a very large German garrison. The POWs lived in an adjacent court would also house a 90 foot or 27 meter tall building. That comes into play later. There were also flat terraces outside the POW courthouse, courtyard, which were watched by sentries 24 seven. So the first officer prisoners of World War II arrived in November of 1939. 40 Polish officers who were deemed, quote, escape risks. There's a theme of that. And the following year, they brought in British RAF officers, all who had escaped from other officer camps, OFLAGs. And the most famous of these RAF officers arrived on November 7th, 1940. And this was a group known as the Laufen Six. That was because that was the name of the camp that they all broke out of, the first camp they broke out of. And by the end of 1940, it said that Kolditz housed 30 British officers, 60 Polish officers, 50 French officers, and 12 Belgian officers. And it said that over the six years it housed officer POWs from 1939 to 1946, that it ended up housing around 600 officer POWs. And with so many prisoners, many of whom were known as escape artists because they escaped from other prisons. Again, there's that theme here. As well as cold itself being a very large prison because it's a very large castle with a very large prison population, the Nazis ended up having a hard time making sure it ran to their level of efficiency. So in order to try to keep everything under their control, they actually enlisted more than 70 officers to keep watch at the castle between 1939 and 1945. Most of these officers would end up being World War I veterans or men that they deemed not fit enough to fight on the front lines. So despite the ominous and ever-looming presence of Nazi officers at Kolditz, life inside the prison wasn't actually as bad as it sounds like it might be, at least in terms of what the prisoners were allowed to do and the way that the Germans treated them. So while in camp, the Germans actually adhered to the Geneva Convention, which meant, says that you're not allowed to shoot or kill officers, or at least kill officers. And so instead of an execution for escaping or an attempt to escape, any disobedient POW was just put into solitary, which certainly can be seen as torture, but it's not death. And there was actually an unspoken agreement between the POWs that they were all there to try to escape. And the guards were there to prevent them from escaping. Now, also, aside from allied and access officers there, you might also find maintenance workers working the grounds. You had Red Cross observers to also make sure everything was up to the Geneva Convention. You had medics, which actually had a medical ground off the actual grounds of Kolditz. And townspeople would even come to visit the castle. And in fact, even family members of those who were held at the castle were allowed to visit. In 1941, the officers are actually allowed to host a version of the Olympics at the camp, which was actually organized by the Polish officers. And this included events such as boxing, volleyball, soccer, and chess. There was even a Polish choir, a Dutch-Hawaiian guitar band, first I've heard of that, and a French orchestra. They were also allowed to even put on shows in place to entertain themselves. Some of these included the man who came to dinner, Pygmalion, the importance of being earnest, and many other popular plays from that time. 
It was even reported that those who chose the female roles grew their hair long, shaved their legs, and covered them in a brown shoe polish in order to imitate stockings. Now, this actually comes into play. I don't know if this was intentional or an accident, but it, it, it's certainly helpful. So it turns out that the polish, or because of the polish, the officers who portrayed the female roles had to wash off in the guards' washrooms because the power of the water in their washrooms wouldn't actually wash off. And in being able to do this, it gave those particular POWs access to tools that they would later then use to make their escape attempts. So the prisoners also invented a new version of rugby that they called stool ball. So the rules were very much like regular rugby, except that you had to try to capture the other team's stool on which sat the stool keeper. And it's actually said officers play this game regularly, mostly for two reasons. One, it was a distraction for the guards. And two, it was a way to cover up the sound of tunnel building, which was ever present throughout cold days. In 1943, the Armed Forces High Command of the German Forces decided that the castle would hold only British and Commonwealth officers, and this meant that the Dutch, Polish, and French officers were to be moved off-site in July of that year. And during this transition, German security increased because there were thoughts that prisoners would try to escape during this transition, which they certainly tried. And many of the possible ways of escape were actually stopped at this time. In fact, several British and Commonwealth officers tried to escape during this particular transit, but this only caused them to get caught and they were transferred along with the other multinational officers to the other OFLOGs. Some of the most famous British, British officers that were kept here were Douglas Bader, who's actually really quite interesting. He actually enlisted to fight in World War II despite having lost both his legs and an accident prior to the war, and he would actually become an escape artist himself, despite his handicap. There was also Patrick Reed, Desmond Llewellyn, and Airy Neve. Patrick Reed actually wrote several books about his life in Colditz after the war. Llewellyn actually may be familiar because he's the face of Q and several James Bond films, and Airy Neve would not only go on to become the first British officer to ever escape Colditz, but also went on to become a member of parliament. There were also some well-known prisoners from New Zealand, such as Army Captain Charles Upham and Sir David Sterling. Upham would actually go on to be awarded the Victoria Cross twice during his service in World War II, which is actually quite a rarity. So sometimes the Axis even capture more prominent allied VIPs and these particular people had to be treated with the utmost care while at Colditz. Possibly the most famous was a man named Giles Romilly, who was a civilian journalist who had been captured in Norway. Unfortunately for the camp, he also turned out to be the nephew of Churchill's wife, Clementine. So the ramifications of what would happen if any harm came to Churchill's nephew was not lost on anyone. Other more prominent prisoners were actually members of British royalty, Viscount George Lascelles, who is nephew to George VI, and also John Alexander Elphinstone, nephew to the Queen Mother. When it comes to escapes, there were many, though not as many as, as successful ones as I've mentioned. Some of the ways the prisoners would try to escape would be making copies of maps, forging papers, making their own tools, duplicating keys, and a variety of other options. 
in addition to material attempts, some actually even pretended to be mentally ill in order to be taken off site onto the medical grounds outside the castle. In fact, Royal Army Medical Corpsman Captain Ian Ferguson was actually able to get transferred doing this and was transferred to Stalag 4D. And while there, he was able to actually declare several other prisoners as insane, and they were soon sent back to their respective countries. He was even successful in convincing the German guards that he himself was insane, and he actually got sent back to Britain for that as well. Others were successful in being repatriated to their particular countries by claiming stomach ulcers, other forms of insanity, back injuries, diseases, high blood pressure, and other ailments that I guess would take you out of the war. Others were a bit more creative. Some, or at least one, tried actually to get smuggled out by being sewn into a mattress. I'll discuss that in just a minute. And some even found their ways into the castle's sewer system and tried to navigate a way out from there. Others tried digging tunnels and others tried to lower themselves out of windows by tying sheets together and using them as rope. So kind of classic escape attempt ways right there. So another piece of, quote, equipment that was devised by the officers and sculpted by the Dutch were clay heads that they called ghosts. And these heads were actually used in place of an officer who was trying to escape. The head would be placed on their bunk at roll call in order to give the escapee as much time as possible before it was found out that there was a POW missing. So the way that the Germans had it set up was that if castle guards notice a POW was missing, they would sound an alarm, which would then also put the, the Nazis and the German guards within the city of cold. It's on alert to keep an eye out for POW. So you want to give, if you were a POW helping another POW escape, you wanted to do what you could to give them as much time and leeway before it was discovered that they were missing. So there was actually a very strange escape attempt known as the tea chest escape. And in September of 1942, a new commandant arrived at Kolditz and ordered the POWs to pack up all of their excess belongings and put them in storage. The guards actually brought the POWs several different size boxes to pack their things into. One particularly small officer, Flight Lieutenant Dominic Bruce, had the bright idea of having himself packaged into a crate, which would then be stored in a commandant's office. And with him inside the crate was a file and 40 feet of roped bed sheets. <laughs> That's a lot of sheets. The morning after his escape, the guards actually found a note in German. I apologize. Die Luft in Kolditz gefällt mir nicht mehr auf Wiedersehen. Meaning the air in Kolditz no longer please me. See you later. Unfortunately, however, Bruce was recaptured a week later as he was trying to board a Swedish ship that was docked in Danzig. So I mentioned before that at least one officer decided to try to escape by being sent up in a mattress. So this happened in late 1940, and this was British officer Peter Allen, who found out that the guards are going to be moving several mattresses from the POW camp over to another camp on the grounds of the castle. Allen was actually able to smuggle an outfit that was meant for Hitler youth, as well as several Reichsmarks that he put into his pockets. He then told the French officers who were moving the mattresses that one of them was going to be a bit heavier than the others. And he had himself sewn into one of the mattresses. 
it was then loaded onto a truck and then taken to an empty house in town and dumped in there with all the other mattresses. When he got into this empty house, he cut himself out of the mattress and had to wait until nightfall when the town was very quiet. When he felt he had a chance of leaving, he climbed out of the window of the house and walked down the road leading out of the city of Colditz. Along the way, something terrifying happened. Now, keep in mind, Alan also is fluent in German, which I, th I think helped him quite a bit. But this particular night, while he's walking out of town, he gets picked up by someone who happened to be driving. And that person would actually end up being a senior SS Nazi officer. <laughs> Alan actually recalled later that, quote, to be vulgar, I nearly needed a new pair of trousers. So his original plan was to make it to Poland. But by the time he made it to Vienna, he was out of money. And he tried to seek asylum at the American consulate because his stepmother was actually from the U.S. But unfortunately, he was refused because the Americans hadn't entered the war yet. And having been on the run now for nine days, as well as exhausted, broke, and extremely hungry, he fell asleep on a park bench nearby in Vienna. And when he woke to his unfortunate shock, he found he wasn't able to walk anymore because he hadn't eaten for pretty much nine days. And he was soon picked up by Nazi guards, taken back to Colditz, and would spend the next three months in solitary. For a time, officers were actually able to communicate with other British officers on the outside by writing to them in code. And in their return mail, several officers actually received escape aids that had been disguised within their care packages. One example would be a deck of playing cards where the back of the card was removable and had a picture of the city of Colditz and a map leading out. Unfortunately, the German officers soon caught on and intercepted any packages that they deemed suspicious. A very unusual thing happened from all this escaping, and I really would like to see this in person. The camp guards actually began a commandant's escape museum on the grounds of the, of, of the castle during this time. So over time, the guards had actually collected so much escape equipment that they decided to put them on display. They even had a local photographer, Johannes Lang, come over and take pictures of the would-be escapers in their disguises. And sometimes they would even reenact some of their escapes for cameras too, when they were taking videos. Along with the photos in the museum, the guards even kept one of the clay heads, the ghosts, and in fact, a security officer, Reinhold Eggers, made the escape equipment a regular part of Das Aberwattblatt, a POW weekly magazine that the Germans made and then distributed to POW camps. As I mentioned, there were many, many more unsuccessful attempts. One source said 120 rather than successful attempts. One of the most remembered is the only one that also resulted in death. And it was an accidental death. So this would actually be an attempt made by British Lieutenant Michael Sinclair, also known as the Red Fox. According to his record, he'd actually escaped prison nine times, two of them actually from Colditz. First time he disguised himself as a senior sergeant of the German guard, he made it past the first two centuries before being asked for his pass. Not producing the correctly colored pass, he ended up in an argument with one of the officers and was shot, but he survived. The second attempt saw him escape to Bulgaria, 
before he was recaptured. And during his last escape attempt in September of 1944, he was accidentally killed after he jumped a fence fleeing towards the woods off the grounds of the castle. The guards actually told him to stop or they would shoot. Sinclair continued running and received a shot to his elbow. Unfortunately, this shot ricocheted off his elbow and pierced his heart. Yeah. However, he was treated professionally by the German officers who actually buried him in the city of Kolditz with full military officers, draping the Union Jack over his casket and even giving him a seven-gun salute. And in fact, posthumously, after World War II, he even received the Distinguished Service Order, the only man to have ever received it for escaping during World War II. Now, the biggest escape attempt would have been made by the French. If they had succeeded, it would have been a massive escape of over 200 French officers. They found out that the mechanics that were used for the clock in the clock tower had actually been re removed after previous escapes, which actually left a, the long shaft for the mechanics actually exposed and allowed the officers to, to lower themselves into it. They also found that the two doors of the tower had previously been bricked up in order to prevent further escapes. This bricking up, however, was actually a major aid to the French as it allowed them to work without being noticed. So over a period of eight months, starting in June of 1941, they tunneled from the base of the clock tower to the wine cellar under the building. In total, this ended up measuring 44 meters long, about 135 feet, I think. With the help of 31 men working at all hours, they worked and worked and worked this tunnel. And as they dug, they actually found parts of the area that would be too difficult to dig through. So they decided to work upwards towards the chapel. And when they were able to dig a good way up, they changed the direction and went back horizontally, which led them towards their proposed exit. There's a map. It sounds a little confusing, but there's a map in our source notes. Uh, I'll post a picture of it to you if you're interested. So all in all, the tunnel created actually went 28 feet or 8.6 meters deep. So it, it, it went pretty far. And the German officers could actually hear everything that was going on, but they couldn't figure out where the sound was coming from. They even tried to use microphones to try to figure out the source, but with no luck. And with some sources say six, some sources say 12, but a handful or so feet to go, just, just a little bit left. The escape was actually planned for January 17th, 1942. Unfortunately, a security officer doing the rounds in the clock tower on the 15th saw a ladder behind the clock, which of course wasn't supposed to be there. The officer then found a small boy, lowered him down into the tunnel. And when the boy saw the French officers, he yelled back up saying, there are prisoners down here. And that was the end of the tunnel attempt. And in fact, the French believed that being so close to their escape that they'd actually been betrayed by one of their own. However, the German officers continuously denied that there was no inside job. They also demanded that the French officers pay for the extensive damage that they caused, a total bill estimated at around 12,000 Reichsmarks. Now, I'm not terribly great at math, but if my conversion is correct, during World War II, at least in American dollars, two and a half Reichsmark 
was equal to $1. So if you'd count for inflation, if my math is correct, and it probably isn't, but it came up to around $550,000 American today for the damages caused. Again, I don't know if my math is right. Another attempt by the French actually happened on the night of December 28, 1942. French officer deliberately blew a fuse that caused a blackout in the courtyard. And this meant that Willie Ponner, the camp electrician, had to actually come and check it out. At the same time, French officer Peridot actually dressed as Willie, carrying a toolbox, and walked out the courtyard gate. Peridot was actually able to pass the first security post, but at the second was asked to produce a token, which was a coin given to German officers and workers at the castle in order to distinguish them from POWs. Not, of course, being able to show them this token, and with no way out by lying, Peridot was actually able to be taken back into camp. He surrendered. According to the book, Colditz, The Definitive History by Henry Chancellor, there were 32 escapes during the six years, I'm presuming, and only a handful of home runs, which means making it into Allied territory. And in total, according to Chancellor, there were one Belgian, seven Dutch, 12 French, 11 British, and one Polish home run. Now, I did find another source that said there were a total of 320 escapes total, attempted and successful and non-successful attempts, with home runs totaling five Polish, 14 British, 15 Dutch, and 22 French. Now, these discrepancies are due to the researcher deciding what would be considered a home run. So Patrick Green, as I mentioned before, says that a home run is any successful attempt made by an officer. Other historians actually consider escapes from the castle or its grounds to be a home run. So one person will say that a home run is made from the castle itself into neutral or allied territory. Reed is also saying that any successful escape, whether it's from the city of Colditz or from the grounds of the castle into allied or neutral territory is itself a home run. So sources will vary on how many successful attempts. Either way, the point being that having so many escape artists with so many skills between them all in one place during particularly during these six years of 39 to 45, even though it was deemed inescapable, meant that Colditz became the most escaped POW camp and all of World War II, all in the, height, the heart of the Reich as well, too. So the first successful escape attempt was actually by French Lieutenant Alain Larey, and he made it out on April 11th, 1941. During a game of soccer, he actually managed to secret himself into a terrace house and a nearby park, and from there managed to reach Switzerland. Later that same year, saw French Lieutenant Pierre Mérès Lebrun, who made his escape on July 2nd. Initially, he had actually tried to climb onto some rafters of a nearby pavilion while the officers were out exercising, but this didn't really work out for him. So later that evening after dark, with the help of another officer, he was actually able to climb over the wire into that particular park. From there, he stole a bicycle and biked the eight days to Switzerland. Biked to Switzerland. That's far. (laughs) I think going three hours on my bike, which is about 30 miles for me, that, that's pretty tiring. And my butt hurts after that much. So I can't, uh, eight days of biking, very strong legs at the least. One of the most famous escape artists was British Lieutenant Airy Neve, 
of what I've mentioned before, and he successfully escaped on January 5th, 1942. After a prison theater performance, he was actually able to stay behind and crawled through a hole in the theater that led into the German guardhouse. He then stole a soldier's uniform, marched out of the guardhouse, and was actually able to reach Switzerland two days later. Neve was actually later able to join MI9, which was the British War Office, and dedicated the rest of his time during the war to help POWs escape. Another notable escape was British Captain Patrick Reed, who escaped on October 14, 1942. His escape actually started in the POW kitchen, where he was able to make it into the German courtyard from there. And then he worked his way into the Commandantor's cellar, from there through a park to the dry moat of the castle. Kind of a, a winding escape here. Once outside of Kolditz, the city of Kolditz, he actually made it to Switzerland within four days. Now, while these were pretty daring and risky attempts, there were some that were a bit less daring, although, of course, always risky. One day on December 14th, 1941, three French officers happened to be in the town of Kolditz on a trip to the dentist. I think most of us would probably try to break away and escape the dentist, too. And at one point during this visit, they were actually able to break away from their German guards, legged out of town, and actually got to safety. One of the most daring attempts ever conceived during World War II, and I think one of the most creative, was that of the Colditz Glider. And this idea was born from Bill Goldfinch, Anthony Rolt, Jack Best, and David Walker. Rolt actually noticed that the area of the chapel roof, which is a long, flat roof, was obscured from the Germans and would actually be a perfect place to launch a glider to fly off of, essentially. And between them, they began building a glider from hundreds of pieces of floorboards and bed slats. The skin of the glider would actually be made from cotton sleeping bags, and it would all be sealed together with boiling millet. Now, millet is a grain, so I'm thinking it's probably similar to oatmeal. They also used a book called Aircraft Design, which they found in the prison library, which gave them diagrams and information on aerodynamics in order to build this glider. So it's certainly helpful. And this glider was built in secret above the the castle chapel from the winter of 1944 into spring of 1945. At its full completion, the monoplane actually measured 20 feet front to back and had a wingspan of 32 feet. And the full weight of the glider is actually estimated at around 240 pounds. So the idea was to actually fly two men out and create a 60 meter long runway using tables on the roof of the chapel. And they'd actually planned to accelerate the glider to around 30 miles per hour or 50 kilometers per hour by a pulley system that was based on a falling metal bathtub that would then be filled with concrete. How you secret this stuff all around cold, it's under the noses of the German guards. Ingenious if it were actually ended up happening. Unfortunately, the men were never able to know if the glider would have been successful as the war ended before they finished it. It was actually scheduled to launch in early spring of 1945 during a scheduled blackout. After the occupation of the camp by the Americans in early April, the glider was then actually removed from its hiding place, put onto view for all the prisoners to see. And it's actually here that the only known picture of it was taken by newspaper correspondent Lee Carson 
on April 15th of 1945. Now, over time, the story of the glider actually became more of a rumor because many not even believing that it even actually existed. The photo evidence was actually not known. However, with the drawing that Bill Goldfinch took with him home after the war and the photo resurfacing after the Soviet occupation fell, the story was actually taken much more seriously. And in fact, in 1993, a one-third replica of this glider was actually launched from the roof of Colditz Castle. And in 2000, a full-size replica was actually produced by Channel 4 BBC and built at Lasham Airfield using Goldfinch's original drawings. And later that year after it was built, some of the survivors of Colditz were actually on hand to witness whether or not this glider would actually be flown, whether it would have been an actual successful launch. And this also included Bill Goldfinch and Jack Best there to, to actually see this in action. The glider was flown at RAF Odeham, showing those there that the glider could have actually worked to fly a man or two out of the castle. And in 2012, Channel 4 again commissioned another full-size copy of the glider, and this time launched it unmanned from the top of Colditz itself. The original plan, it was, well, it uh, sands metal bathtub with concrete. It was actually a radio-controlled radio glider, but it launched off of the chapel roof of Colditz to see if this actually would work and made it across the River Mulda and landed in a nearby meadow around 180 meters or 590 feet below the castle. And today that second replica is actually housed in the Imperial War Museum in London. And if you wanna see these gliders in action, and I highly, highly, highly recommend you do, there are two videos in our source notes, one for the full-scale launch replica from Odeham and the other, the full-scale launch replica off of the roof of cold. It's they're absolutely worth watching. And the one from Odeham also does have the Colditz survivors there, including Goldfinch and Bess. And it's seriously worth a watch, I guarantee. It's amazing. Now, the fall of Colditz as a prisoner of war camp ended, again, early April of 1945, when after two days of fighting, the U.S. troops actually entered the town in order to rescue the prisoners and take control of the castle. Because there had been some very prominent officers being held there, both the Allies and the officers in the camp feared that the Nazis would use the VIPs as hostages, shields, or possibly kill them as the troops, the U.S. troops took the castle. Thankfully, however, the German officers had actually moved the more prominent officers out of the castle grounds by that time. And this was, incredibly interestingly, all thanks to the POWs at Colditz at that time. Many of them had actually been able to persuade the guard leader, Oberglupenfer Gottlob Berger, to surrender in secret. Because of his help, these VIP officers were actually able to make it to the American lines just a few weeks later. And also, because of his assistance, he would actually receive a much lower sentence during his hearing in 1949. Now, in the following month after the U.S. occupation, the Soviet occupation began, and after the Yalta Conference, the city of Kolditz would become part of East Germany. Under Soviet control, the castle would later become another prison camp for non-communists, and eventually it would serve as a nursing home, another psychiatric clinic, and even a hospital. It's also said that the original glider, which was left at Kolditz, was burned by the Soviets after it 
they took over but we're not actually known it, it's it's not known what the original fate is but it's not there the original is not actually still at cold it's now the last of these residents from the psychiatric clinic and hospital were moved out in 1986 and the castle was then renovated for several years eventually becoming the museum that you see today and when visiting you can even see some of the tunnels that were used by the allied officers during these escape attempts this does include the french tunnel at the clock tower and fascinatingly, I don't know how they did this, but oh my gosh, during the parallel leg of the tunnel that they were digging, they were even able to install electric lights in secret, which of course not only allowed them to see where they were going, but also allowed them to signal the arrival of any German sentry on duty that was coming up to the clock tower. Additionally, I also don't know how they did this but the French were even able to have a cart on a track in order to haul up the debris from the tunnel, which was then transported in sacks to the clock tower's attic. The ingenious of these people, it's just, wow. Additionally, during these renovations in order to create it into a museum, several POW hiding places were also discovered. One of them happened to be a radio room that had been built by the French during the war, However, somehow the room was subsequently lost. I couldn't figure out how, but it did resurface several years later and is now on display, I believe. Now, the lives of those who lived here, as well as those who had escaped, have been memorialized in at least over 40 different books on the subject. Some actually written by the POWs themselves, as well as films and various other sorts of media. There was a film actually named Reaching for the Sky, which is actually based on the life of Douglas Bader, the double amputee that I'd mentioned previously. In 1955, the film Cold Its Story, which was based on the books by Patrick Reed, premiered. There was also a 1971 TV film based on the glider attempt called The Birdman or Escape of the Birdman. And this starred Doug McClure, Chuck Connors, Rene Abergenois, and Richard Basehart. And from 1972 to 1974, there was a 28-episode TV series called Cold It's, which actually took the viewer on a journey from housing POWs at the camp in 1939 to the occupation of it in 1945. And this starred David McCollum, Edward Hardwick, and Robert Wagner. And in fact, in 2005, a miniseries based on the books of Henry Chancellor also aired. Now, I understand video games, but I was surprised to find out that there are even a couple board games about cold. It's that would not have occurred to me. In fact, the most notable is called Escape from Cold It's, and it was put out by Parker Brothers and went on shelves in 1973. It even had renovations to the games in the 1980s and even a re-release in 2011. And according to VintagePlaytime.com, the game can be played with between two and six players. And from their website, the description for the game reads as such. A family game based on the now legendary escape exploits of Allied prisoners of war held by the Germans in the multinational maximum security prison of Kolditz Castle during the Second World War. The object of the game is for each player, an escape officer, to be the first to achieve and escape one or more of his POW team. He can obtain rope, food, compasses, clothing, and wire cutters to achieve his escape. At the same time, 
the German security officer is deploying his forces to prevent escapes. There is a link in our source notes for about a 10 minute video on how to actually play this board game. I also recommend looking that up because it was really interesting to watch. It was kind of fun to watch. And I think it would actually probably play this game. I, I also like board games, but for, as a strategy game, it's really quite interesting. I would certainly recommend checking out the how-to video that's in our source notes. And as I mentioned, video games make a little more sense to me. There are several video games over the years that have actually featured Colditz. There's Escape from Colditz, Prisoners of War, Commandos 2, and a variety of others. On a very odd note, I guess, there's even a rock band from Melbourne, Australia, whose band name is actually Colditz Glider. Now, given travel issues, of course, going on right now and everything, so if you're wanting to visit Colditz, but you can't because of traveling issues, there is a link in our source notes for a virtual tour of the castle. And it's several, it's like, I think 20 minutes long or so, but it takes you through different parts of the castle. It takes you into the tunnel systems. It shows you the French tunnel. It shows you a variety of different tunnels and different displays and things throughout the castle. So if you want to go, but you can't go right now, I definitely recommend checking out our video and our source notes for the virtual tour. It's really, really nifty. And that's going to be all for today. Have you actually been to Colditz? Did you have any interesting experiences while you're there? Were you there for the flight of one of the gliders off the roof? Let us know. Feel free to share your pictures, your experiences. We'd absolutely love to hear about it. You can find us uh, at facebook.com slash history explains it all. Our Instagram is instagram.com slash history explains it all underscore podcasts. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, you are absolutely always more than welcome to email them to us. Our email is history explains all at gmail.com. If you listen to us on iTunes, please feel free to leave us a rate and or review. It really helps people to find us. And if you do, we'll be more than happy to read it on air for you. <laughs> and if you listen to us on Spotify, don't forget to check out our episode notes for any episode specific questions or polls that we might add or post. And with that, I will end it here for today. And we will see you all next Thursday as we continue to trek through history to explain it all. Bye.